there were some parts of our faith that were born great. I mean, the Trinity, um, the resurrection, all of the things that we hold dear in terms of our faith, uh, just the way of salvation, those things were kind of all born great, if you want to look at it that way. Those are the things that we're going to be discussing from now until eternity. There were other things that sort of became great. Uh, and I think maybe an example of that would be the Lord's Supper. It was something that there was a lot of discussion about. And so through history, that's been, you know, there's been debate and discussion. And so it sort of has become great as a result of all of the uh, theological wrangling that sort of went on about it um, throughout the early parts of, uh, of our faith and, and our journey. And then there are some issues that have greatness thrust upon them. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And with the Supreme Court's recent ruling regarding same-sex marriage uh, and the fact that it now, uh, it, they have essentially outlawed any provision that prohibits it in the states, um, the church uh, has had this issue of same-sex marriage and in a sense, and sort of along with that, how do we deal with uh, people of a differing sexual orientation. And that's kind of been thrust upon us. And so, um, in 2014, the Vineyard put out a position paper, and that is typically how the Vineyard responds to controversial issues. They study it, and then they put out a position paper on it. And they did that last year, last year for a couple of reasons. The first was simply the rapidly changing social dynamics regarding this issue. Um, it has been extremely rapid over the last several years uh, how people have sort of changed the way they view same-sex marriage and, and, and just homosexuality in general. And the other reason was that there was a vineyard pastor from Ann Arbor, Michigan, who wrote a book um, and he had he previously served on the served on the Vineyard's executive team was a very well known pastor, but he published a book affirming that uh, his church and he were willing to ordain um, openly gay individuals as well as bless their marriages. And so, uh, because of his high profile, the Vineyard put out this pa this paper. And so recently, because of this decision within the Supreme Court, it happened just a week ago, and I, having been gone, and the fact that it happened on a Friday, I really wasn't able to put anything together a week ago to deal with it, so this is the first opportunity that I've had. And I think it was, it's important, even though it's perhaps not the most edifying subject we could talk about on a Sunday morning, I think it's important that we talk about this and that you all, as part of this church, understand where we are with this issue and how we will deal with it uh, going forward. So, <clears throat> and, and, and I guess by association where I stand on this as well. So, <clears throat> I think really the first thing that, that we need to keep in mind when we're talking about this is that when it comes to this subject, we need to remain true to the tension that we have always felt 
in the vineyard. And by tension, I don't mean that in a bad way. That tension has always included this radical acceptance and a showing of the radical love of Jesus. That's something that we've always embraced. But then along with that, there's this, the other side of that, which is this radical obedience to what the gospel says. And that's driven by the infinite holiness of Jesus. And so we found a variety of ways to, to talk about that, to put that into words. We've, um, some of you are familiar with a book that a vineyard pastor wrote that's kind of a history of the vineyard called The Radical Middle. And The Radical Middle in the very beginning talks about that tension. You know, another aspect of that tension is between the orthodoxy of the Bible and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you get too far in either direction, you can get off course, right? Dry orthodoxy ends up over here. Cultish behavior can end up if you go too far this way. And so that middle point is where we, all, we always want to be, holding those things in tension, right? <coughs> so when it comes to this issue of, um, of LGBT individuals, question that we really have to answer is this. Well, how do, how do we stay faithful to the Bible while remaining relevant to our modern world? It's a tough question. And so in biblical terms, I think we can really look at two particular passages that kind of put that into perspective. The first one is from Jude, uh, the third verse. And Paul writes, Dear friends, although I, I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Well, what's he saying there? He's saying there was a faith that was given once for all and that we're supposed to contend for it. That means we don't change on a whim, right? That means we, we kind of fight for it and we battle for it. So you have that as sort of that one dynamic. Then there's another dynamic. You have something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And in the ninth chapter, he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, although I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. What does that sound like? That sounds like Paul's making a concession, right? If you just read it, sort of took it at face value and didn't look any deeper into it. So what he's really talking about is relevance, okay? He's talking about being relevant to the people that he's preaching to. So we have those two passages that kind of frame this whole thing. You know, this idea of contending for the faith along with this idea of remaining relevant so that we could continue 
to win people. And that's really the point that we want to be. We want to be able to do ministry. We want to be able to do theology from that point of tension between those two things. We don't want to get so liberal that, you know, all of a sudden we just give in to everything. You know, we give in to whatever moral or religious or spiritual sensibilities the culture might be telling us that we should embrace. But on the other hand, we don't want to get so fundamentalist that we refuse to adequately contextualize the gospel if the culture changes. And I was thinking about that, and let me give you an example. Scripture is full of, um, especially in the Old Testament, about idols, about worshiping idols and so on and so forth. Well, does, we don't really know of too many people that worship idols any longer. You know, by that I mean have a little room in their house that has a table and all these little figurines on it, and they go in there and they worship that. So what we have done in, in the preaching of the gospel is to contextualize idols into something that uh, is more relevant to our culture. For example, some may make television, watching television, an idol. It's something that holds this place of importance in their life and that they give a lot of themselves over to it. Um, for others, it could be you know, an addiction of some form. So what we've done is we've taken this idea of idols in scripture and we've contextualized it for our current culture. And I don't think that, you know, by the, I don't, we have not changed the message of the gospel. We've just changed sort of the context in which we're looking at it, all right? So that's what we're, we're after. That's what we're trying to do here. And so how do we do that? How do we kind of start to deal with this issue? And I think there are, <clears throat> uh, I've got some suggestions on how, how we really as a body can start to look at this and can start to deal with this. Um, and I think one of the first ways is the tone in which we talk to people. The tone in which we talk to people. If you haven't noticed, human beings are extremely complex. They often have a lot of ambiguities, right? If you haven't, uh, haven't noticed that already. And so I think because of that, the tone that we have to take has to have an, um, the essence of less than 100% certainty about all things. All right? See, I think it's often not what we say that tends to be very off-putting to people. It's more how we say it. Um, if we take on this kind of a haughty or absolutist or severe tone when talking about this issue, we're immediately going to alienate people. One example that comes to mind in, in thinking about tone is Pope Francis, right? Pope Francis has totally changed the way the world sort of thinks about Catholicism and perhaps even Christianity in general. Well, how did he do that? He hadn't really changed the content of Roman Catholic teaching, at least not that I'm aware of. But what he's changed is the tone. Why has he done that? Well, immediately following his ordination, one of the first things he did was to wash the feet of this Muslim girl who had been held captive 
for a number of years. And then he goes out and he's in some situation and there's this severely disfigured boy that is right there and he just kind of spontaneously leans over and kisses the boy on the head. He's completely kind of done away with all of the trappings of the papacy, right? He won't live in the papal apartment, which is very plush and luxurious. Um, he pays for his own hotel room when he travels. He picks up his own dry cleaning, and he even drives a Ford Focus, all right? None of those things are earth-shaking, but what he's done is he's completely altered the way people look at and I mean, I think it's worked because regardless of whether you're a Catholic or not, we, we tend to, to look with favor upon Pope Francis. It's like, oh, that's a good guy. And it's because he has, is living out the tone that he wants to set. You know, he's gotten involved in, you know, some current affairs, some current issues. I know he's spoken out against global warming. Whether you believe what he says or not, I think it's interesting that he has now taken on an issue that is at least in the, in the current discussion. So for all of those things, um, you know, he is really changing the conversation by his tone, okay? And so I think the right tone really has to sort of kind of acknowledge some ambiguity, um, as well as the fact that there are some real life situations that are profoundly difficult, you know? And so we've got to acknowledge that and we have to look to the Holy Spirit, not only for wisdom, but for some direction, you know, and how we, how we deal with that. I think another one of the things that, that we need to do is to maintain a sense of humility in all of this. Um, it's a guy named Tim Keller who's pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, and he, he said this, I'd like to read this. It is normal for human beings whose hearts are always seeking to justify themselves and who are always trying to make the case that they are one of the good guys to divide the world into good and bad. If, however, everyone is naturally alienated from God and therefore evil, then that goes for everyone from murderers to ministers. The biblical teaching on sin shows us the complete pervasiveness of sin and the ultimate impossibility of dividing the world neatly into sinful people and good people. It eliminates our attitude of superiority towards others and our practices of shunning or excluding those with whom we differ. Except what? The queer no, I have not. I understand. You need to let me finish. Okay. This does not mean that we will never call sin in others' sin. But it does mean that we will simply never see sin as dividing others from us. In fact, there was a church sign that I saw last night that I thought was very appropriate for this. And it said, don't judge others because they sin differently than you do. <laughs> a third 
way is to avoid soundbite theology. And I think for this, we need to remember that a Christian understanding of sex and of the morality of certain sexual practices is deeply embedded in a comprehensive understanding of what, who God is, what God considers sin, God's good creation, the creation of sex as part of that good creation, um, humanity's sin and the redemption of Christ. So in other words, a Christian view of sex really can't be seen outside of an understanding of a Christian worldview, right? If we don't really understand what a Christian worldview is, then we're not going to understand what a Christian view of sex is like. Think of it like this. And I actually have some experience with this because I've been to Europe and I've seen some cathedrals, right? And if you look at many of these cathedrals, they have stained glass windows. But if you look at them from the outside, they're really not very impressive at all. They're kind of blurry and maybe dirty. In many cases, they've put some sort of a, a clear plastic shield over them to keep rocks or whatever from being thrown through them. So they're very, very unappealing. But yet, if you go inside and you look at those windows from inside the cathedral, they're gorgeous. And they tell a story. You know, oh, look, well, there's the, the ascension of Jesus or whatever. And so we've got to make sure that when, you know, if we're going to talk to someone, you need to work on bringing them into the cathedral first. So in other words, you can't just offer, you know, well, the Bible says, if, if someone is not a Christian, you can't go out and just say, well, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong. Now that is what it says, I believe, but that doesn't mean that's going to be an effective way of dealing with someone who is not looking at things from a Christian perspective, all right? And then finally, I think um, we, when it comes to the issue of causes, you know, what causes this whole issue of same-sex attraction? I think we have to practice ag agnosticism. Um, there really is nothing conclusive as to what causes this. You know, there have been a myriad of social scientists and biologists and scientists of all stripe who are studying this issue. And th none of them have concluded that they understand conclusively why, what causes this. And so I'm pretty sure that no one here is a, bio, you know, is a biologist or a uh, social scientist that is specifically studying this issue. And so with that being the case, I think it's a pretty good idea to say when, when you, you're addressing this particular issue of saying, you know, I don't know. An agnostic is someone who's not sure. And so I think it's a, it's a good idea for us to not be sure, uh, you know, when it comes to talking about what causes this in people. Because if we don't, very often very good-hearted Christians can cause a lot of injury and a lot of damage to the church of Jesus Christ through innocent remarks. So let's transition now from that to what exactly does the Bible say? about this issue. Now, despite what you may personally think or believe, this is a very, very complex issue when it's looked at exegetically. 
Um, and I'm only going to scratch the surface. It would take hours to go into looking at all the verses and all the interpretations and so forth. So I'm just going to give you a very high-level overview. Um, but in a nutshell, those that support the idea of homosexuality or same-sex behavior base their conclusions on seven key verses in Scripture. And it's their interpretation of them. And I'll just tell you what they are. It's Genesis 19, 4 and 5, Leviticus 18, 22, Leviticus 20, 13, Judges 19, 20 and 23, Romans 1, 24 through 32, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Now, in almost all of those, what it comes down to is the way that an individual interprets specific passages in a cultural context or how they define specific words. Uh, just to give you one example, there's a word in both 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Um, and the issue there is the meaning of this particular Greek word, and the Greek word is arsenokoetai. All right? And so if you believe that the Bible does not support the idea of homosexuality, you're pretty confident that that word is made up of three other words, meta, arsenos, and koatain, which translates as with man lie with. But if you're an opposing writer, then you find some other way to define that. And so that's what I mean. That's why it's not necessarily as simple as saying this, because what they're doing is they're digging back and looking at context and looking at definitions and so forth. Um, it's about hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is really just a theological word that means interpretation. It's how you are interpreting what you're reading. Um, and to get into all of those would be way more than I think many of you would ever care to hear. But let me give you the bottom line. According to the Vineyard's own scholars who have looked at this and who produced this position paper, their conclusion is that a theology that affirms same-sex relationships is broadly subversive to the biblical witness. And that it's being done essentially uh, because straightforward biblical teaching on the subject is simply inconvenient for many people in a contemporary Western world. So they're trying to pander to the culture necessarily. And what our scholars are saying is we can't support that, that that's not what we believe Scripture says. And then finally... Let's take the case of someone who is uh, practicing an openly gay lifestyle and comes in to be part of our fellowship. What level of participation should we offer that person? <laughs> well, not it was somewhat rhetorical, but, and I would say probably not 100%, but 
but let, let's, so let's look. Well, let, first of all, let's just look at the activities that normally are part of church life, all right? You have communion, you have baby dedications, you have baptism, leadership positions, ordination, and then marriage. Those are typical things, I think that's probably pretty close to all of them, that you could be involved with if you were part of a church. So let's look at each one of those things um, in order. So first of all, communion. Now there's been a lot of debate about communion over the years. Um, you know, the whole issue of the substance and you know, those early arguments that uh, were had that we have one of the creeds now to sort of talk about uh, you know, whether it's actually the body and blood of Jesus, which is what Catholics believe to other beliefs that it represents and so forth. So, that, so from a vineyard perspective, we really have never been too concerned about that. What we have um, typically been interested in or what's relevant is um, the issues that surround what's the Lord's Supper for? What's it function? What is its function, I should say? So what does it do? You know, is it primarily this tradition of remembering Christ's sacrifice? Is there a mysterious divine interaction that occurs in some way? Is it an oath of fidelity? Is there grace imparted? Is there faith required for it? See, all of those questions are what sort of inform how we view this. And it would also help determine who has a seat at the table. Who gets to take communion? And I would say in the vast majority of vineyards, ours included, this is sort of, would be the principles that we follow when it comes to communion. We remember that uh, in the communion meal, we remember Christ's sacrifice for us. And because Christ made that sacrifice, it doesn't matter what merit we bring because it's about him and not about us. We recognize that there's a mystery that's part of communion. There's a mystery when we come to the table. And so we approach it with humility rather than an arrogance or sort of a know-it-all mentality. And we just don't understand. We're also declaring our fidelity to Jesus in doing this. And it's his supper. And so when we come and we take communion, we're pointing our lives to him. No matter where we are in ours, we were trying to point our lives in his direction. Because there is, we believe there is grace that's imparted as part of the meal. We believe that those who recognize their need of God's grace the most are the most welcome at the table. And then finally, because grace can only be accessed through faith, empty religion finds no place at the table. So faith in Christ is crucial to an understanding of an open table, right? So throughout church history, and even in our present time, there are some denominations and, and that practice what they refer to as a closed communion table. And a closed table, really means nothing more 
than communion is reserved for people who are members of a church um, who have made some sort of a public commitment to Jesus. Um, and so because of that, it really becomes kind of a marker for who's in versus who's out. And the, the way these particular denominations also look at it, that it carries this promise of dispensing this great benefit of grace. And so keeping your eligibility to receive grace is really important. And so therefore, it's sort of a means of keeping people in line. You know, if you step out of line, well, you can't take immunity anymore. I guess the question we have to ask is, was it really meant to function that way? See, at the original Last Supper of Jesus, it's striking that Judas was present for the meal. Even though Judas, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. The betrayer was still welcome at the table to participate in the Last Supper of Jesus. And I think what's even more interesting, perhaps, is that uh, in Mark's gospel, he says that when the meal was over, they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives together. And it was there that Jesus told the whole group of them, you are all going to fall away. And so it's striking that everyone who participated in the Lord's Supper originally turned away from Jesus after the supper. And Jesus knew it. He knew it was going to happen. So I would say that for Jesus, the Last Supper was definitely not a marker for who was in and who was out. I think we also have to consider the major issue that Paul had with the way the Corinthians were practicing communion. Right? He wrote to them. That's what the... Uh, uh, in particular, like the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians is about. Well, the problem there was not that they were including people that they should exclude. It was that they were excluding people that they were supposed to include. See, the wealthy were eating these lavish meals and getting drunk. And the poor went hungry and had nothing to eat or drink. And so what did Paul tell them? What was his general exhortation to them? He told them that they needed to, in this situation, and I think it's widely applicable to others, he said, discern the body. He said, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So I think his exhortation to us today would be to discern the body and to make sure that we include everybody that Jesus included. That means drug addicts, alcoholics, gays and lesbians that haven't left the lifestyle and divorced adulterers who are still with their mistress. They're all welcome at the table. If they sincerely desire 
to turn towards Jesus and they place their lives under the faucet of God's grace. That's the, impor that's the important part. Because what better place is, it, is there for them to go? If you're trapped in sin and you're deceived by its sickness, then to the table of God. The only fitness that's required to take communion is a sense of our utter sinfulness. No other moral qualification is there. What about baby dedications? Well, baby dedications are one of those times when I think people and, and families are somewhat open to um, the place that church might have in their life or the, the place of Christ. It sort of draws them in. They start thinking about that. Whereas maybe, you know, it wasn't so much uh, part of their thought process before. And I know we've talked about that in the past that, you know, it's so many people come into the church as a result of their children, right? I mean, I've mentioned the fact that's how Sally and I did it. It wasn't for us. It was for the kids. <laughs> Wanted to make sure the kids, there was nothing there for us, right? Just the kids. Now, admittedly, there is very slim scriptural backing for baby dedications. <laughs> you can maybe find you know, a hint of it in the story of Hannah in the Old Testament. Maybe you know, when Jesus is presented in the temple in the New Testament. Um, but by and large, it's not anywhere close to what we would call a sacrament or an ordinance. It's uh, a church rite, essentially. Um, and essentially, it, it sort of came about to bridge this gap because Baptists and Anabaptists and other denominations essentially say that you have to be old enough to understand what baptism really means before you can be baptized. And so um, baby dedication sort of fills that hole until a child then reaches the age in which they can make a formal profession of faith. Now, in, in, to be fair, in traditions such as the Catholic tradition, the United Methodist tradition, which baptize infants, they then have a confirmation process which serves the same purpose in that it allows them, allows the children to later make a profession of faith, a public profession of faith. And so, but anyway, <clears throat> For traditions that reject infant baptism, baby dedications have kind of become the way to do that. And so, you know, I think in our, our uh, movement essentially asks us to be flexible and open to anyone who seeks to have a baby dedicated. Um, primarily because it, it can often be a pathway uh, that someone can actually come to Christ through. And so I think in large measure, it would be an opportunity uh, to talk to someone for myself, to do some counseling, to make sure that, you know, someone understands exactly what this means and exactly what the responsibilities are about, you know, it's really about the significance of raising up a child to believe in Jesus. Um, and so from a movement standpoint, that is left up to... Um, individual pastors of churches to decide 
probably on a case-by-case -case basis whether or not they would choose to do this. Now, what about baptism? <clears throat> well, there's always been a, a historic debate in the church about who is baptized and when they're baptized. Just touched on that a little bit just a moment ago. But probably one of the bigger questions is, is baptism an initiatory rite? In other words, one that uh, immediately follows someone's conversion so that anybody who confesses Jesus is eligible to be baptized. So that's one view. There is another view that says, well, you have to go through a fairly lengthy catechism process and really un, you know, go through a class that teaches you all this about baptism. Uh, and then you have to actually demonstrate some fruits of the fact that you understand what this is all about before you can be baptized. Now for the majority of vineyard churches, and I think ours is certainly among those, we look at it more as an initiatory rite. Um, that's the way it looks to me if you read the New Testament. You don't really see any indications of long involved classes and someone having to prove they really understand um, what this is. If someone confesses Jesus as their savior, they are immediately eligible to be baptized. But I think in order to do that, you would have to make sure that someone really understands what this means to accept Christ. It can't be, well, do you accept Christ? Well, yeah, sure. So I think there is a middle ground between just, well, there's really not a middle ground. You just want to make sure that when somebody accepts Jesus, they know what they're doing, right? There's a little booklet, I don't remember the author, but it's called My Heart, Christ's Home. Anybody ever seen that, read it? What it does is it, it um, sort of breaks down the way that you give, you know, Jesus your life into the, the rooms of a home, right? And so Jesus knocks on the door and we open the door and we let him in. And we welcome him into the foyer and, and into the living room. We might be a little hesitant about taking him into the den because it's kind of messy there and we really may not want him to see some of the stuff because, you know, there's some magazines that we've been looking at that probably wouldn't make him all that happy and so forth. And, and yeah, then there's that closet that's at the top of the stairs that we keep locked. And we don't even like to go in there. And we're certainly never going to show Jesus what's in that closet. And yet, if we're going to give Jesus and allow him to make our whole heart his home, then we have to open that door and let him in there as well. And so I think when you make that known to somebody, and they understand that, then they understand. And it's okay to move forward with baptism from that point. But they have to be willing, and this is even people that are, are wrestling with all kinds of things. See, in the church, we, 
you know, we have a t this tendency to make this particular sin stand over and above all of the other sins. And if you read what Paul says in Romans, it's not. And so anybody who's wrestling with any sort of an addiction or ever, ever, any sort of ongoing practice of sin would be eligible for baptism as long as they say that they are willing to invite Jesus into every area of their life. Now, if a candidate, someone who's a candidate for baptism would say, well, we understand what the Vineyard's position is on sexuality, on living together, on racism, on getting drunk, uh, and we just don't agree. We're just never going to give that up. Well, then we wouldn't baptize them. It's as simple as that. Because they have to be willing to move in that direction. Um, leadership in a church. <clears throat> Scripture actually puts uh, a fair amount of moral qualifications around leadership. And, uh, and so I would, anyone who's practicing sexual sin of any kind, or is involved in some sort of an addiction and is not having any success in dealing with it, um, they would not qualify to be leaders in our church. It's an issue of modeling. I mean, Paul talks about imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know, that's kind of the model that we're given. And so, and we look at it as something that's very instrumental, that's very significant. And so we wouldn't want to promote somebody into leadership whose lifestyle we don't agree with because you know, the odds are that that's going to be replicated through their sphere of influence. And we just can't have that happen regardless of what it is. Um, as far as ordination goes, We simply will not ordain anybody who is having a sexual relationship outside of marriage. Now that would be an extramarital affair, a premarital affair, a same-sex relationship, all of those things. It's all treated the same. And we would want to discipline people. You know, if we learn that that is sort of where they are, then we're going to have to talk about it. And then finally, marriage. And, you know, in addition to everything that I've said so far, you know, the belief, and, and there are certain, one of the, going back to what, the, what Scripture says, one of the things that people who sort of are in this, they affirm that the Bible says homosexuality is okay. They completely ignore the statements that Jesus and Paul make regarding marriage and divorce that draw from Genesis 1, which talks about a union of a man and a woman. Um, they, did, they sort of just put that to the side, say, well, we're not going to talk about that. Well, I don't think you can do that. I mean, I think, Je you know, they'll say, well, Jesus doesn't talk about homosexuality. Well, yeah, he kind of does, because he says that marriage is between a man and a woman, and he quotes the Genesis text to do so. Right? So, um, because we believe in the vineyard that that's the way that is read, 
then we would not marry someone who is in a, a same-sex relationship. So, you know, let me just conclude this. You know, we worship a God who is all loving, but who is also all holy. Our Savior is radically inclusive. And we want to be a church that is radically inclusive and welcome everybody with wide open arms. But this radically inclusive Savior is also radically demanding. And he calls everybody who follows him to pick up their cross when they do so. And I think any attempt that the church has made in the past to welcome people without any kind of a demand for repentance or self-denial has caused the church to shrink, not expand. Every time we try to accommodate the culture, it just doesn't work. We can't sacrifice the church's distinctiveness. Unfortunately, at this moment in time, we live in a, in a deeply divided and very partisan nation. But we do not have to be a deeply divided and partisan church. We've got to embrace the tension that is in life right now. The tension that I talked about in the beginning between... Um, this radical love and this radical holiness. None of us are where we need to be. I'm certainly not. And if any of you think you are, you're fooling yourself. Because you just committed the sin of pride and now you're back where you started from. Suffice it to say that as a church, we welcome all people, but we do not affirm all behaviors. Now, does anyone have a question? Just to clarify, that's what I meant when I said it wasn't a sin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, she said that's what she meant when she said 100%. And I think, you know, one of the things that this paper <clears throat> points out, and if you were to read Ken's book, he uses words like, you know, love the sinner and hate the sin, which actually is not scriptural. Gandhi said that. Um, and uses words like exclu exclude and so forth. Those aren't vineyard words. They've never been part of the vineyard culture because it's always been this very much of an open arms of this radical love, but understanding that there's this radical holiness piece too that we're all working towards, right? And so that's where, where we've always been and that's where we'll stay. John? 
Right. Right. Yeah, and just so that you know, the board, um, gosh, it's been a several years ago, on the advice of, um, it was the American Family Association or someone, they were sort of putting out a bulletin. We adopted a statement where we defined marriage as a union between one man and one woman. Now, I honestly, based on what I'm hearing, we may need to go back and revise that to be between a biological man and a biological woman. <laughs> Otherwise, you then start to get onto another slippery slope that we probably don't want to be on. And there are some other things that, that they recommend that we do, which I'm going to have the board address next time we get together. But it's just, it talks about to whom and, and for what we would allow people to use our facility. And all this is to make sure that you sort of can't be, uh, that you're not uh, hypocritical, you know, in what you do. That you, you know, that this is a space that is reserved for religious services and religious use. And if you stray from that, now you're inviting a lawsuit, potentially. Because someone could say, well, you don't always use it for that and so on. So if someone were to come, and I mean, I think it's kind of a, uh, I mean, honestly, I think if you read the statistics, we're talking about a, a very, very small portion of our population, honestly. Yeah, hey, thank you for all of those who are gathered here. I just pray your, your blessing now on each one of them. Touch each one in a, in a special way. Father, guide them in this week ahead to that one person that needs to hear from them today, on that day. Whether it's a touch or a word, a smile. And let your kingdom be multiplied through such seemingly insignificant acts of kindness. We love you, we honor and praise you, and we thank you for what you have done for us. And we ask all these things now in Jesus' name, amen. If you